solidarity is such a huge thing when we're having social change and, and working towards social change and social justice, because it's not an over there problem. It's a all problem. It's a problem that I can't get rid of unless I'm in the shit too. You know, I have to be in this problem to solve this problem. And if we're not doing that together, we, you shouldn't do it at all. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr. And I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Humanize. Today, uh, Courtney and I are going to do a deeper dive talking about our conversation with Reverend Yearwood Jr. last week. Um, We're going to tell you who he was and what we talked about, but real quick, Courtney, how's your week going? It's still snowing, man. (laughs) Why? Why is it snowing in April? (laughs) So loud. Sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. My aggression You're fired is. Up. <laughs> <laughs> Courtney was telling me before we were recording, he didn't see snow until you were in a teenager. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 Uh, the city of Atlanta shuts down when snow comes and play that. I don't know. We don't know what's going on. Yeah. Here in Colorado, it's the end of April. We have like a foot and a half down here in Boulder. You probably have much more up there in Estes, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like oh two feet, two feet right now. When it was sunny a day ago, it's like crazy. Right, right. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so we have a really important topic that we're talking about today. It's like overwhelmingly important. Um, so Reverend Yearwood was, was talking to us about climate justice. And just a little recap for folks who may not have joined the last episode. He is the president and founder of the Hip Hop Caucus, which is um, built, it's an organization for the culture's role in civic process, the the hip hop culture's role in civic process and empowerment of communities impacted first and worst by injustice. He is a minister, a community activist, a U.S. Air Force veteran, and one of the most influential people in hip-hop political life. And he's become a national leader in the Green Movement. Um, He was there fighting at the um, negotiations in Paris. He was at Standing Rock. Um, He's been dubbed as the new Green Hero by Rolling Stone and recognized by the Obama White House as a champion of change. And he was with us, really helping us, okay, helping me understand, you know, what's what's the difference between the social justice movement, climate change movement, climate justice movement, um, giving us so many examples about, you know, this extractive mentality that has been um, pervasive in our country's history from enslaving people, not caring about what happened to their community, to just taking things out of the earth and yes. just taking things from the indigenous communities. And there was a lot that he said about, I mean, amazing stories about 
hip hop culture and, you know, working with Jay-Z, um, as well as his work with the fossil fuel industry, which is really the focus of his work is, um, you know, he said he's dealing with the fossil fuel industry whose business plan means a death sentence to my community. And he had amazing stories about, uh, he's from Louisiana. So Katrina was a real, um, I think a real call to action for him in, in his evolution. So we're going to today just talk about some key pieces that like really stood out for us in this conversation and, and take it a lot deeper as we are on this mission to, you know, humanize, humanize this process. And, and right now through our experience, bring, bring some different points to life. So does that sound like a good recap, Courtney? Man, that sounds perfect. Um, I, I, I love, seriously, I, I like how you, you said, the, let's humanize that. Um, just talking about, New or- thinking about New Orleans and, and the flooding, it's so much more than just the, the climate and infected individuals on such a, a deep level because they were, were homeless. Um, now you're affecting a the community. They can't go to schools. They have to move out. They have to be relocated. And individuals just came in and, um, and bought up the the situation like you said capitalizing on a crisis you know and so yeah that that was that was awesome that was amazing and it's like the numbers we get lost in the numbers so like um my friend who works at 350.org who introduced us brett fleischman he said more than 10 million people die each year from air pollution according to a new study which is far more than you know the three million people who have died from covid this last year but when we hear like 10 million that's so it it's so beyond like what I can grasp as a human. Like it's yeah. hard to think of each individual. It's it becomes a number. Um yeah. and I think why this is really relevant to what we talk about here is that like who lives close to that toxic air that's getting yes. polluted. 100%. You know? And who who can choose to live far away from it. So I mean yeah. it, it always comes back to me um what becomes an issue and when does it become an issue? is when certain individuals are affected by that issue, you right. know? And, and like when you had the drug ec- epidemic, human trafficking, is people dying because of certain things. I mean, the honest truth is people of color seem, seem to be more expendable and it's like, oh, it's okay, they're the problem. And then when, when white people or, or affluent people or other individuals, they, situations affect them now it's a it's 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 a call to action type thing you know let's have um, just look at yeah look at the difference between you know the aids response and the covid response in terms of how quickly a a vaccine was created and yes yes Yeah. yeah this hits home for me this is a lot this is great yeah so like based on that conversation, I'm curious, did you, like when you were growing up, do you remember environmental influences? Like, you know, what was the air like around there, pollution like around there? Like, Oh yeah. I don't, I mean, in, it, in every inner city, the air is different. I mean, the air is different here. I'm feeling in Colorado versus back home in Atlanta. And so when people are creating cities um, and you have highways and we talk about redlining, all these situations, 
it's they're created to make sure that a certain um, individuals are are and may be exploited, or you could do certain things in certain communities, and you have to protect the suburbs. You know, when it is not by by chance that Trump was trying to be reelected, he was he started to focus more and more on the suburbs. He started to focus more and more on the, the moms, you know, because individuals need an oasis. Individuals need a place where they can call home and feel safe. And traditionally, that hasn't been the inner city until recently with gentrification. You know, like they now we can make more money. We want to be closer to a metropolitan city. Now they do certain things to raise the prices of those um, those neighborhoods by imminent, like creating imminent domain and 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 um, put uh, like certain stores and and buying out individuals who have been in the community, raising prices prices, knowing that the the people that were in that community would not be able to afford living there anymore. And to me, that's not hundred percent like climate per se, but obviously, if you're doing like taking landfills out or like building better school systems or putting better grocery stores in those communities. Now you're going to plant more trees and you're going to have um, clean up the parks. And so, because now there's more profit, there's more that it seemed to have more value um, when those same places could have been valued when the demographics were what it was, right. you know? So, right. so, yeah. so, yeah. so that, that's, that's what I've seen growing up all the time um, in, uh-huh. in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, can you, I know we have listeners, you know, tuning in from around the world. Can you explain redlining for people who might not know what that is? Yes. Redlining is a, a thing the government did when they literally drew a red line around communities that were not uh, affluent for um, the port schools and housing and things of that nature. It was a map of a little red lining and a created creation of ghettos to make sure that individuals and in, in, in housing and education and everything was substandard within that red line mm-hmm. um, on, on a map. And so, and that changes too, because now that, that talks about gerrymandering, which is a way to, for voting. And so redlining is just a, a place on a map in certain um, jurisdictions that showed this isn't the place where you may not want to live, Versus this is a place that of most influence. So that's what it was called redlining um, mm-hmm. because uh, it was a literal place on map where individuals were not, it's not not you were allowed, but you didn't want to live or, or grow up or be if you wanted your, your children or your family to receive the best of the best. Yeah. And I, gosh, it would be great to get someone on who like, I, I feel like the effects of redlining are, are, infinite you know from like yeah. getting a mortgage and 100%. like it has for people who are interested in the history of the u.s redlining has a significant impact on who's who gets elected who is able to create 100%. wealth and pass it on and yes. accumulate and it's a lot it's a lot and so to connect it as well to climate justice i just continue like it's you know a part of that conversation um so let's let's hear a clip here from Reverend Yearwood where I had asked, you know, in my mind, I hadn't really, I have thought of climate change and the conservation movement and social justice as two 
kind of separate things. And I asked him to help me weave them together. And this was his response to that question. Well, first you have to understand that, that the, the reason why that unweaving took place was intentional, unfortunately. The modern day environmental movement, I mean, so there's two parts of the environmental movement. There is the conservation movement, which doesn't have a great history with our indigenous sisters and brothers. Um, in other words, building parks and monuments. And thank goodness that Sierra Club has has done some good work to to combat that. But that's what that was. In other words, they they felt that this little bit about the conservation movement. The conservation movement was what we want to create these parks and we're going to build it on reservations and through Indian territory. That was a, and we're going to create land. So that was the whole idea back then, the conservation movement. Moving forward, though, right around 1968, 1967, and 1969 was the birth of the modern-day environmental movement. And so the, the environmental movement is then created. And most of your large green organizations, from the League of Conservation Voters, uh, National Resources Defense Council, NRDC, Greenpeace, Rainforest Action Network, uh, Union of Concerned Scientists, most of those organizations are created around this time. Now, this is also the time when the first Earth Day, so that's kind of your, your, your pin. If you want to pin a date on it, your first Earth Day, which was created in April 22nd, 1970, that is when that appears. So that's the birth. And that's also the creation of the EPA and so forth and so on. What's important about that is that also during that time, if you know, in 1968, 1968-1970, is also a time when the Black Power Movement is going on. Dr. King had just been assassinated. There's a powerful uh, gay rights movement that is that is emerging, um, that is happening. There's a powerful women's rights movement that's happening. There's a powerful anti-Vietnam movement that is happening. Uh, and all these things are going on at that time. But the environmental movement at that moment doesn't want to be aligned with the streets. It says that we are going to stay in the suites as a movement and not go into the streets. So that was a tactical, important movement. We're going to try to create things through legislation and policy. And they did. We had the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and a number of policies. But there was also a siloing. So you created a siloed progressive movement but at the very beginning, in which white people, in particular those on the East Coast and the West Coast, um, I like to say kind of Birkenstock, just to be kind of kind, but, the, <laughs> but they then began to say that we are going to stay away from anything that is activist. So if, if you begin to do it, if it's, if it's Black power, we're going to stay away. If it's Palestine, we're going to stay away. If it's anything that's going on for poverty, we're going to stay away. If it's Police brutality, we're going to stay away. And so they begin to stay away. And that continued even when the environmental justice movement, which then emerges in 1980. So out of North Carolina and Warren County, uh, they're building a landfill. Dr. Ben Chavis, I used to work with, with Russell Simmons, uh, who's been head of NWCP, actually coined the phrase environmental racism. Uh, they began to rise up and say, hey, you know, you're not going to be putting this pollution in our community. Our communities are not going to be sacrifice zones. Our communities are not going to be the path of least resistance. But even then, the violence movement kind of moved that to the side. And so it was intentional. 
this comes full circle because now the reality where we are is that our planet and I would well, not our planet, but for us living on our planet literally now is at stake. And that movement that's been around for 50 years now, which is now predominantly white, doesn't have the capacity, never did have the capacity because you need a movement that has everybody in it, black, white, brown, red, male, female, straight, gay, theist, atheist, human. You need a human movement to take on this battle to fight for our planet. And so a siloed, segregated, predominantly white, class-driven movement would never be a movement of a philosophy industry that is entrenched worldwide and has the most money of anything in the world. And so now all of a sudden, unfortunately, through privilege, white people will figure out that they literally cannot be someone who has more privilege than them. And so here they are asking and saying, well, we need help. Well, to be honest, black, brown, and these people are saying, well, we don't really, we, we've been dying for a minute. And so, and we know how treacherous and how vicious they can be by putting their pipelines in our community and putting their, their landfills and, and all those things in our, in our community. And so then when you have, that was a moment in which people like me and many others are now saying that we need to fight for everybody, but particularly you got to fight for those have been put in sacrifice zones and raise it up. So the, the environmental movement is now at a crossroads, to be honest, really at a crossroads. And which they're at a moment now where they now have to say, for years, for years, we decided to silo, our, silo ourselves away from the progressive movement. But now we're in a moment now when we need everybody. So now they, now they, had, to, they had to go through a lot to go through. So now they need to rechange their organizations because, to be honest, they not to say that, hey, we can't do this with having orgs that are 90% all white. We, we, we've been marketing this stuff for a certain kind of, it's it's created its own culture. That's one of the things that's important. I guess people always say, Rev, how did you know that, Rev? Because I know culture. And people would always say to me, how did you understand that from the very beginning? I said, because they would, even when I first came into this movement, the climate movement would say, oh, we want culture we want this, we want that. But then I would say, no, you already have a culture. There is that. Now, listen, I like Patagonia. I like North Face. I like outdoors, man. I like, I like all that. That's cool. It's cool gear. But it's a culture within being a climate person. And in that culture, that kind of, you know, that way, that culture is devoid of justice. And so now we're at a moment where we're fighting for humanity. Like literally, our parents in the 20th century fought for equality, and we're definitely still fighting for equality. But right now in the 21st century, us and our kids are not only fighting for equality, but they're fighting for existence. Like literally, our kids are literally fighting to live. 50 years from now, our children and our children's children are going to live in a world if we don't make changes that will be horrific. It is already a bad situation right now from wildfires and droughts. But for them, can you imagine what this world would look like if we continue on this path? It will be chaos. They will be, and, and I don't want that for myself or for the next generation. And particularly knowing what happens to poor people and black people, I know what it looks like for them. And so that is the reason why now justice has to be at the center of the climate conversation, like it or not. But here we are. So when I listened 
to him respond to that, I was really, well, <laughs> I guess kind of struck by my own naive naivete. <laughs> Can you not not say it like that? Naivete? Yeah, that <laughs> <own>. is, yes, yes. <laughs> My own, anyway. Um, because I don't think that, like, I don't know. I, I guess I like to think that things just evolve and they're not so intentional. But what was clear in his response was how intentional it was that the conservation movement depart from the social justice movement and they get kind of siloed. And I was struck as well that it's it like the same thing happened with the, the women's vote, the suffrage movement, how like there was some sort, there was a choice along the way to say, we can get the vote for women, but we can't get the vote for the black women. And I just see, and I'm wondering if you can think of other examples or other ways that movements decide to separate themselves from the BIPOC community and the um, social justice work and just like abandon that in the name of progress. I'm going to take it even a step further. And I, I just okay. it can't come to my mind, but Martin Luther, we would have never even known Martin Luther King. The silo, siloing even happens in the BIPOC community. You know, it's not just uh, a white black thing. It can be a BIPOC community. When you think about Cesar Chavez and Dolores, like they had to separate themselves because are you going to, a movement is going to progress if it's led by a man or a woman. Okay. So, you're going to have so to give you, me some history of what you're oh, talking about. See, yeah, Cesar Chavez was, um, he was an activist for Hispanic community when it came to farmers and things like that. But Dolores mm -hmm. was also a very powerful leader in that. You know, and so she was like until recently, like I didn't know even who Dolores was until like I did some research and found out that she was as powerful or probably more than he was. But they had to choose, pick and choose what leader they would have used to push that for the Hispanic community and the farmers and the agriculture. Right. And so when it came to civil rights activists for um, African-Americans, Martin Luther King partnered up with a guy named Bayard Rustin. But Bayard Rustin was a gay black man back then. They couldn't have had the leader of the civil rights movement be a gay man, you know? But he was the one that really was, like he was Martin Luther King that we knew, that we know of today, mm -hmm. you know? So it's marketed as Martin Luther King was the guy that really pushed it. But there's some arguments that Bayard Rustin was was more influential than even MLK. So um, there's there is siloing even amongst that because it all comes back to power, you know. And a lot of times people would rather sacrifice what they know is truth to get an agenda across in their mind for the greater good, mm -hmm. you know. And and even it even came up like. I'm sure Barack Obama had to sacrifice and compromise a lot too to get certain things passed, you know, because being at that, that level and understanding all the levers of government and everything is about him. Everyone was trying to say no, 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 no. It was a certain point where, and I don't know this, I'm just making an assumption right now, but there has to be a point where there had to be silos. Okay. I want the, the, the affordable care act to go. 
I know that this may not be the best part of it, but I could take that out so I can at least push, keep pushing forward. And that's a lot of stress to be under and a lot of compromises that have to be made. And so this it's, it's, it's not just a black, a white um, siloing. Sometimes it's even siloing within um, the culture that has to mm-hmm. be done for the greater good. Again, it goes mm-hmm. back to a system. The system was created so well and so efficiently that it even breeds dysfunction within the silo itself. If I'm not making sense, I, I, it's, uh-huh. it's it, every time we talk, talk about this, I find a new nuance to appreciate. And it sounds like I'm giving applause to a white supremacist system, white supremacist. Yeah. but I got to give due. It's brilliant. It's, it's like, you know, yeah. as, as a scientist, you got to always see like then engineering, like the engineering of the COVID disease or HIV virus. That engineering is phenomenal to get into a disease and change the whole machinery of the body to do exactly mm-hmm. what you wanted to do. To me, that's fascinating. So when I think about right. white supremacy, you mean someone sat down in Virginia, a man named Willie Lynch, and made a psychology of how to create a slave, and it lasted generations. Like, if that man doesn't get, like, some, you, you Hitler, Hitler sat down and convinced a group of people to kill another group of people because some trauma that he went through right trump picked the perfect time to run for president one and now like people understand like that's a different type of mental thing so the only way to change that is to recognize it and say you know what i have to be that intentional and that audacious to change that and so if we talk about climate change, again, there are people who said, hey, climate, and that, that shit is ridiculous. There's no such thing. Mm-hmm. What? What are you talking about? Fires in California have shown you. It's snowing. To me, I, I don't know if this is regular in Colorado, but, but this, to me, is endemic of climate change. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. all of this thing, like, but we have to be so audacious in this social justice work to address all of these issues and not have the silos because silos decrease the likelihood of true progression. Mm -hmm. Again, they give you the illusion of change and they don't actually create the change that we say we want. And people continue to profit on poverty and profit on, on, on um, crisis because we haven't, we haven't come together and decreased silos. We haven't used a resource. We haven't, acknowledged privilege and so how do we expect to really create change with climate right and i i feel like part of that brilliant system of white supremacy was this this extractive mentality that i think that we've all just accepted as how we survive so this is what um rev said about extractive mentality i think that the the recycling and reusing and reduce part of the process is very, very important. But what we are now learning more and more is that the extractive mentality that created the climate crisis is exactly right in our DNA, particularly as Black people, but also for people of color, Black, Brown, Indigenous, and people of color. We see that from the beginnings of when Black people were extracted 
from the motherland and from the continent, and they were extracted and brought over for a financial gain, no matter what that did to the people or to that community. And so that same extractive mentality of digging in the ground when you have other ways of getting energy, other ways of powering your resources, even despite that all agree, that extractive mentality that rips people from their land and, and enslaves them is that same extractive mentality with, within the fossil fuel industry. That's the same mentality. So, so you have to understand that I, I, I actually, a lot of young folk around at the caucus, they say that it's not just about environmental justice, it's about environmental liberation. This is not normal. Like what we've accepted as, as normal is not normal. We've this extractive mentality of like, we can go in and take whatever we want for whatever concept, this idea of a better life, whatever that is it at the cost of our entire planet, like how brainwashed have we become? And this is, this is me too. Like I really struggle with like staying aligned as closely as I want to, to, to protecting the environment, because the, like, you know, what is easiest, what is more affordable now is not protecting the environment. I think when I had, so we have solar panels on our, our house. I can't tell you how many people, including my dad and all my neighbors are like, so what are your savings? What are the cost savings with having solar? And I'm like, this is not about saving me money. Like we don't actually have that data because we put it in as soon as we got our house. It's not about saving me money. This is about not using all of the energy <laughs> in the grid. Yeah. Like this is a this is uh, that is the the main question I get from people. You know, it's about cost, and um, we are we're just locked in with this economy. And I'm hopeful with what the Biden administration is trying to do now, pushing a lot with climate change and saying they want to go you know, move away from fossil fuels. And that is going to create a lot of jobs. It's not like all those people who have jobs now in the fossil fuel industry will just be unemployed. Like there, there is industry coming in, but we have to yeah. like, how do we, that underlying this, I mean, it feels so like, as I'm talking, I can get how these are woven together. Yeah. Like that, un, that underlying piece of, around white supremacy that I'm constantly trying to, dissect and own and see the subtleties is right along with that extractive mentality. You know, like we're talking about breaking down something that's part of now an accepted part of, of my fiber Yeah. and to move away from it takes a ton of energy because you're like, you're swimming upstream, you know, Mm -hmm. you see the thing about poverty, poverty, people always think about poverty as a poor person problem, right? Poverty, Mm -hmm in my mind has always been a mindset of extraction, a mindset of Mm. now, a mindset of I'm not living for tomorrow. I'm living for right now. So you can have a lot of money. You could be wealthy. Well, you can't be wealthy because wealthy individuals think about tomorrow, but you can be rich financially and have a poverty mindset and live in poverty because you're Uh living for, for a time where I'm just going to enjoy right now as if, you don't have children as if there's no tomorrow, as if people are not coming behind you that they're going to need the resources that you are using up. And so to me, when you think about climate change and things like that, 
a lot of individuals, white, black, green, or yellow, are living in poverty because we just think about, hey, I got to get money. So I'm going to use all this. I'm going to use fossil fuels. I'm going to go into a community. I'm not going to plant trees. I'm not going to um, make, I'm going to put a, an expressway. I'm not going to care about admissions. I'm not going to do all these things as if their kids, their grandkids, you weren't about certain diseases that come up. Mm. Most diseases are lifestyle diseases. Mm-hmm. They come from the food we eat. They come from the air we breathe. They come from the water we drink. And yeah, most of the individuals that are beneficiaries of the, the, the extraction lifestyle are in communities of color. But there are also white communities that are going through this situation, too. Again, mm-hmm. this is what I like to say. Poverty is just marketed as a BIPOC issue. Mm-hmm. But poverty is a human issue. It's just like it's just more more sellable and it's more sexy to be a BIPOC issue. And people can because of white supremacy, because no one want because of the exceptionalism of white people, they want to make it like, oh, we that's not our problem. Oh, just by numbers, they're more poor white people than BIPOC people. Now, as we as we move, as we as we move into it, it may start to change. But just as, as we stand out, it's like people forget there's a whole rural America. People are living without electricity up there. Like it's crucial. So just don't think that in the inner city, it's just people of color going through hell. Like, and that's right. so it's it's like as a black man, and as a I I have to make sure that I stay grounded in the poverty question and not the creation of race that has been done. Uh, almost perfectly in this U.S., this invention of black against white, Hispanic against white. Like that's some creation in the U.S. that has pitted us against each other. This is a poverty situation. It always comes back to economics. Mm. And so like when we have these, 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 this gentrification and climate and all this stuff, even urban planning, trees are planted certain places to make sure that certain areas are good, just to make sure people come back from the white flight that happened. There's a great book called Color of Law. Like if our guests can read that book, that is a, an amazing thing about white flight and the like redlining and 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 housing and all of those things. It's amazing. So I suggest a, a book that's read um, called Color of Law is one that you you do today. But yeah, so it, it, I just always have to make. Yeah, that always has to come back to um, is a poverty question. It's not a, a race thing. It's not a black and white thing. It's just that individuals who benefit from gentrification are, are mainly um, affluent white individuals, mainly, you know? So this is reminiscent of what Rev was saying about seeing yourself outside of the problem versus seeing yourself inside of the problem. So... One more clip from him. He has so many great things to say here that are just so, so relevant. So this was, this was in response to a question he had mentioned doing something out of charity versus solidarity. So this was his response there. So I think when you're approaching a problem, you have to see yourself as not outside the problem that you're trying to fix. And so a lot of times we, we approach problems 
in a way in which we're here to help. And whereas, for instance, if you're going into a community and say, I'm here to help community X, and I'm, but, but you can always leave the community. You're not really there. You're just really staying at the Holiday Inn. And, and, and you can then you can pack up after three or four days and go back to where you live, which is very, very different. That's a nice gesture. Thank you for coming. But that's charity. When you live in that community and you're facing the consequences of whatever you're facing, if it's the climate crisis, if it's if it's violence, if it's if it's poverty, whatever it may be, if it's state sanctioned police brutality, whatever the, whatever it may, you may be dealing with and you're there then your survival is connected to your sister and brother. And that changes how you fight and how you approach things. It's like in your home, if your house is on fire and you try to get everybody out your house, then everybody's survival is dependent on one another. As nice as it may be on the outside, if you're pouring water on the house, you have a different perspective if you're inside the burning house. And so I think that your position in the movement and how you approach this must be seen as a position of, you can't, to me, you can't do this work if you're positioned from the outside, looking in. You can help, it's nice, but you really can't create the change, particularly when you're dealing with, in my situation, enemies like the fossil fuel industry, who literally their business plan means a death sentence for my community. And so, so when you have that, you can't be, you can't approach enemies like that in a very haphazard, laissez-faire, I can leave during spring break, I can go to the Hamptons kind of mentality. You have to be in this day in and day out. You have to go to sleep and get up knowing your enemy is constantly trying to destroy you and your community. So this, uh, again, <laughs> brilliance, <laughs> brilliance of creating something where the people with a lot of money see themselves outside of the problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is, this is white supremacy as well, where there's this mindset of like, if we de- deconstruct white supremacy, we, as in, you know, white people, as I feel like it's our responsibility to do that, it is in service of BIPOC communities, which it is, and it's in service of, of white communities. And exactly. that's something that I feel like gets lost. So I'm wondering if you can talk more about that, like how, how it would benefit white people to deconstruct extractive mentality, supremacy, oh, wow. redlining, all, you know, like all of that. Um, it's a it's a life and death thing. You know, when you think your life is inextricably tied, like MLK said to someone else, you fight as hard for that person, you know? Um and 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 Rev Yearwood said it, you know, solidarity is what is as is a simple thing that's lost a lot of times when individuals are trying to give back, you know. Mm. It's, it's mm-hmm. a problem. That's a problem. I'm doing my best, but I get to go home when you're like, you don't have to live. See, that's the thing. You don't have to live in the projects to understand the life of the individuals. But your perspective can be that. Let me go help those people over there. Your perspective in my mind should be, let me go help the people so that 
we can all progress, you know, because mm -hmm. because when you separate yourself from a problem, you're you're really in my mind, you're not helping. You're only throwing crumbs at an issue. Like slave owners felt as though they were, oh, they should be happy, especially slave owners that had black people in the house taking care of their kids. Like they felt like they were actually doing something good while they were actually doing harm, you know? And so mm -hmm. it just it just goes on to, to present day. Solidarity is such a huge thing when we're having social change and, and working towards social change and social justice, because it's not an over there problem. It's a all problem. It's a problem that I can't get rid of unless I'm in the shit too. You know, I have to be in this problem to solve this problem. And if we're not doing that together, we, you shouldn't do it at all. I would rather someone said, hey, that's y'all shit. I ain't dealing with it. I don't got nothing versus someone who says, all right, here you go. I'll see y'all later. I have once a year where I feed the homeless. What else can I do? I Thanksgiving is coming up. I'll see you then. Yo, I'm hungry every day. I need clothes every day. So either you're going to really be a part of the, the solution or don't help. Like, honestly, don't help, you know? And so solidarity to me is everything. Is I felt like as in my life, I felt like I was starting to not be successful when I was being successful in medicine, if that makes sense. When I was going to the hospital every day, when I was not a part of the, the, the community that um, I represent, I felt like I was distancing myself too much. Yeah. Too much yeah. And I thought, ah, oh, I felt like a hypocrite. And I'm not, again, mm -hmm. I have no judgment to individuals who want to, who feel as though, you know what? I, I see the issue, but I can't be as involved over there because I feel like I have more work to do in this aspect or my family depends on me for that. And I get that. So I don't come from a place of judgment. Like everyone should stop what they're doing and just jump into this fight. But let's have an honest conversation about where you are in the struggle instead of thinking like, I don't have, is, that's, that's that problem. I had to really look in the mirror like, I may be part of this problem, man. I think that feeling of being a hypocrite is something that, that really gets in my way when it comes, comes to climate work because it feels so hard to be completely aligned with my values at all times. Like I still get on a plane to go visit my family. I spent a decade of my life on planes, you know, around the world. Yeah. Uh, we have two cars, you know, yeah. we compost, but we throw away a lot of food, you know, like there's yeah. a, there's a lot of individual choices. And I think that um, there's kind of this um, like, I read once this emotional equation thing. I think Chip Connolly wrote it. He's like, um, overwhelm plus helplessness equals apathy. And I come back to that a lot in a lot of different issues because I feel like, you know, I, sometimes at night I'm like, 
I, my kids want to talk about like, especially Brooklyn, she wants to talk about when she has a kid and she nurses her kid. <laughs> Brooklyn is three. So she wants to talk about that. And I, I can't help but be like, what is the world going to look like in 30 years? Are they going to be living in deserts? Are they going to, what, how are they going to get food? How are they going to connect with their friends? Are they going to be only yeah. on technology? You know, and I'm, it's so overwhelming and then I hold this piece of like, I am not doing enough. I have, you know, divested from fossil fuel, which I think is something everyone listening to this should go do <laughs> divest from fossil fuel. Um, and I know that that's not enough. And so I'm faced with this feeling of being a hypocrite and it's easier for me to flip back on like, well, then don't think about it, you know, mm-hmm. move, remove yourself from the problem because it's easier on my conscious than to stay in the problem yeah, because it's so yeah. overwhelming. Like it's so like, I left this conversation with the rev feeling so overwhelmed because it's like, we're trying to fight COVID. We're trying to fight police brutality. We're trying to fight guns. We're trying to fight climate yeah. change. Like mm-hmm. I, how yeah. it's paralyzing and it's easier to just see like, okay, I'm going to go make myself a coffee and I'm going to play board games with my kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't think it's hypocrite. I think it's evolution. You know, everyone's evolving. And this that's the thing. If you, ignorance is bliss. When you don't know, you, you're very happy. You know, or you're very, uh, oh, you pretend <laughs> not to know is you're very happy. Or, yeah, yeah. When, when, the, the more education you get, when you're truly educated, sometimes it could seem as though, it could seem as though you are fearful. You can seem as though you are a scare, you are afraid of of everything. But this is a part of the evolution of the process. You did I didn't wake up. I mean, my whole trajectory of my life was different 20 years ago than it is right now. Mm-hmm. That's an evolution. I, I think that your whole life is based on evolving. You're not gonna be like, hey, I'm a social activist, and right now. Everything that I'm working for, I do. Like MLK, I mean, he's beloved, great, like great leader, great orator, inspirational, but he cheated on his wife, mm-hmm. right? Like n- people hardly talk about that. Like he was a he was a womanizer. He was that guy. Like in in the hood, he was he 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 got he he did that, you know. And but we don't want to talk about that now. You have Malcolm X, who's branded as Oh, by any means necessary, violent. No, he never cheated on his wife. Mm-hmm. He did what he did in the few, in, in, in the beginning of his life, and at more towards the end of his life, he was he was more progressive. He was bringing in more white people to 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 lead to help. So there's an evolution because we even talked about that with artists. Rev deals a lot with artists. He said, "Artist A." may not have the luxury to evolve because they may not live long enough to evolve into the activists that people feel like they should be or they feel like they don't have the obligation to do it or they evolve into other people than they were at the beginning of their um their career and so like everything is an evolution life is that so when you talk about social justice work climate work that's all the, the the 
the, the thing that we're trying to do, just even with our podcast, we evolved from the first episode of season one to right now. Mm-hmm. Like if, 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 if you go back to that, yeah, it was cute. You know, it was cool. It was new, you know, but I feel like we're evolving into more of something that's sustainable versus a fly by night type mm-hmm. thing. So we, the conversations are becoming a lot more richer, a lot more impactful. And, and so I think that is just how much it has to be when we're doing social justice work. It starts with a, an emotion of change. It starts with you wanting to do better to you actually doing better. And that even changes. So you say you compost and then you may jump on a plane. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. That doesn't even mean you're a hypocrite. That means you're human. That means you're evolving into the person that you want to be. And your daughters will take that evolution to a next level. Mm-hmm. I mean, my father started entrepreneurship in the, in the family. He broke a chain. It's my job to take an entrepreneurship now and to add social aspect to it. My son or daughter may take my social entrepreneurship to a whole nother level, you know? And so it's just, everyone is evolving. And that's what um, I think is beautiful about this work that we do. It's never a right or wrong. It's an acknowledgement of a problem and an evolution towards changing the problem because the problem has been here far before you were even thought of. And if you think that you can change it, with just the years, if you live to be 125 years old, you're not going to solve the problem that was here before you. And so yeah. it's just a hundred percent. You so yeah. You're you're making me think of like the uh, kind of the internal skill set that's needed to continue to fight for climate justice and for social justice of like I don't like accepting my own imperfection. Right. Yeah. Like I, I get caught in perfection a lot. And, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> church, church, preach, Pastor Brock. I don't, know, preach. I don't know if you've noticed in the past year, Courtney. <laughs> I don't know if you've picked up on that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I get caught in that. And then I guess to, you know, one way to make myself feel better in the short term that is to like back away from it. Right. Either like go for it and like go crazy trying to make it perfect or back away and say like, maybe you can just sweep it under the carpet a little bit and not think about it, but to fully embrace, like, I'm not going to get it right. It's not going to be perfect. Um, Yeah. This, you know, I'm going to be called out either on my hypocrisy with, climate justice work and doing enough or get called out on saying something racist, saying something that offended someone and mm-hmm. just the continual. Yeah. I can say it until I'm blue in the face, but like actually living it is harder. It's just like, it, like I'm not here to, to yeah. get it right. I'm yeah. like just here to, to try to keep getting better at, you know, aligning with what I, I want to be doing and treating yeah. people better, treating our planet better. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I love the episode, you know, and this debrief has shown me so much. It's because it's bigger than climate, you know, it's like, it's everything. Climate mm-hmm. has a, a, a in, indications on health, which has the indication on housing which has indication on the economy which like so it's like that that episode to me 
was a, a global one. And that's why I'm really appreciative yeah. for um, just what Rev um, brought into the conversation. We thought we were going to be talking about artists, music, the hip hop culture, um, which is amazing. But we, we even took it even uh, further and talked about just a life and death connection that must be thought of to really address all of these systemic problems that we have. And individuals who have the privilege must align with individuals who don't have the privilege in order for us all to have the privilege. And that's what I think, if I could talk about what I, what I took away from that episode was how much solidarity may be the most important thing when we're talking about um, activism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And continually feeling the like, the human aspect of it, I feel like is mm -hmm. what creates the solidarity for me, uh -huh. continuing to hear people's stories and understand that we're not separated from them. Their, their pain is our pain. Their joy is our joy. And that, that connection. Exactly. Um, well, thank you for this conversation today. I think, you know, I think we should start leaving our, our listeners with some action, action steps at the end of our debriefs, because uh, we want, you know, solid action steps. So today, here are the things you can do. Read Color of Law. <laughs> if yeah. you have investments, divest from fossil fuel. That includes your retirement savings. <laughs> yeah. Pressure your bank to divest from fossil fuel. This is one of the biggest things. I've had some interesting conversations with Chase. Um, I'm a customer at Chase. They're one of the biggest culprits of, um, you know, they they make a lot out of fossil fuel. And so I call them and I tell the, you know, the people I talk to on the phone, like, please tell your managers, please tell the people up at top, like you need to divest from fossil fuel. And I've been surprised at their reaction. Often the person on the phone, I'm like, are they going to just be like, oh yeah, whatever. And several times they've thanked me. They say, thank you for, I oh. definitely I'll definitely do that. Thank you. We need more people calling in to, to say that. That's awesome. So you can make a choice. Either don't use the big banks or pressure the big banks if you're within the system. And uh, yeah, those are our... I have one more. Uh, and I have one more. Say it. Say it. L listen, enjoy, and subscribe to the Humanized Podcast today as the last and final action step, if you are Please. not already leave a rating leave a review yes. we really yes. need your support <laughs> thank you thank you awesome thank you so much thank you Thanks for joining us on this episode of Human Eyes. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Human Eyes Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.